Good afternoon, everyone. Dr. Stillman here for another Monday Masterclass. And today we are talking about what causes diabetes in healthy people. So this is a topic that comes up regularly for me in my practice. So someone comes in, they eat a healthy diet, they live a healthy lifestyle, they've listened to all the podcasts, they've taken all the online courses, they've bought all the biohacking gear, they've taken all the supplements, they're subscribed to all the right newsletters, they know everyone who I reference in the biohacking, health, wellness, and nutrition space on a first name you know, basis, and yet they have an elevated hemoglobin A1C, they have an elevated fasting blood glucose, and they can't figure out why. There was one case in my practice that really blew the lid open on this topic for me in a way that I did not anticipate. It was a case where we had a very high fasting blood glucose level in a woman who was extremely carbohydrate restricted for years. And I've commented on this. Jim has commented on this. That's Jim Laird. For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, go give him a like, follow, et cetera, uh, on his various social media platforms. Uh, anyway, she had this very high glucose and we couldn't figure out why. And she'd been really carb restricted for a long time. And Jim and I have mentioned how long-term carb restriction does not tend to work for people, uh, particularly for women, various reasons behind that. Not going to get into that today. Um, but this then prompted me to look at this person's mineral status. And what I found uh, in collaboration with Clark Engelbert was that this person had very high levels of toxic metals that had been missed on previous testing that I and other clinicians had did. Why is that? Because most people are not viewing minerals within their proper context. And that is why Clark and I created the hair tissue mineral analysis course that we have that you can find out more about in my link tree links. Uh, if you go to Dr. Stillman's special offers, there will be a blurb in there about the HTMA secrets course where you can view the course and sign up for the waiting list. We will be running another uh, cohort in the spring, but enough on that. So this comes up in my practice all the time. I've had some really amazingly bad cases. And for those people out there who've heard, well, if you've got diabetes, you just need to do this, or you just need to do that, and your A1C will come back into the normal range, I have news for you and for the people who've told you what you believe. There are some people where carbohydrate restriction is not the answer because if it were, they wouldn't be consulting me in my practice. So let's talk about the other things or components of a plan that we could use to help get these people better. Without further ado, let's jump into some really interesting papers. Okay. So this first paper is frankly the best paper on this topic that I was able to find for this Monday Masterclass. And if you don't know, the Monday Masterclass comes out every Monday at between three and four o'clock. Usually it's run live on my social medias. If you're watching there, hit the like, hit the comment, hit the subscribe, follow me so you can get these updates. I'm covering topics that actually matter in health and wellness from a very practical perspective, rather than the kind of um, often navel gazing uh, academic way that many people do on the health and wellness info space or you know, opinions from people who don't actually take care of patients and don't really understand what's actually going on with these illnesses. So, um, and if you want the regular subscription or regular notification that the videos come out, just sign up for my Substack, which the link is in my bio. Uh, and the bio is um, in the description of this YouTube video. Okay, so cadmium lead, arsenic, and selenium levels in patients with type two diabetes. The bottom line here is that they did the novel thing of asking the question, could heavy metals, which as you all know, I am not a fan of, 
cause insulin resistance and diabetes. Now, diabetes is a complicated illness, but at the end of the day, all things are simple. Uh, I like Einstein's quote. He said, if you can't explain it, it might have been Richard Feynman, but one of those guys said, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old and you don't understand it well enough, at the end of the day, there are simple things that cause illness and disease. Heavy metals are definitely the top of my list for causing health and disease in our modern world. So they looked at whether or not cadmium, lead, arsenic, and selenium levels varied between people with diabetes and people who did not have diabetes. And this study, I find it very funny. It was done in Nigeria. Uh, I think it's kind of sad that there are not more papers on this coming out of, I don't know, the United States, which is historically anyway, a scientific powerhouse and juggernaut. But American scientists seem to be very distracted by whatever it is they're distracted by. As far as I'm concerned, most of American medicine is chasing after noise that doesn't translate into better patient care, but that's another story. Okay, the mean value of lead and cadmium were significantly higher in the serum of diabetic patients when compared with the control, but there was no significant difference in the concentration of arsenic. The serum concentration of selenium was significantly lower in diabetic patients than in healthy controls. Okay, what does that mean? Toxic metals did correlate with worse disease and the presence of disease period. And the selenium concentration went down with diabetes. This begs the question, aren't minerals or to what degree are minerals at the heart of insulin resistance, right? In cases where I see a mild abnormality in the hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood glucose, high insulin levels, whatever, I will almost always use a combination of minerals that are known to improve uh, glucose tolerance, okay? This study showed that increased toxic metals are associated with diabetes mellitus, thus these elements may play a role in the development and pathogenesis of diabetes mellitus. And yet, tragically, the vast majority of people who have diabetes never hear anything about minerals from any doctor, clinician, and in some cases, even you know, health and wellness influencers who, you know, in many cases I know are not qualified to, to dig into this literature, but when you start using minerals to get people well, you almost feel sorry, can't help but feel sorry for the people who don't know how to use them. But anyway, okay, so what are these minerals and how do they work? Okay, and which ones are I most enthusiastic about for blood glucose issues? So number one, chromium. This is in no particular order, by the way. If someone's got a high glucose, I'm almost bound to recommend a combination of the three minerals I'm going to talk about today. But chromium is one of the most interesting. So we didn't know anything about chromium until like the 1970s when we had enough technology to put people who couldn't digest food on something called TPN. That's total parenteral nutrition. That means we were feeding them through their IV, through an IV, through their, their vein. That's very abnormal. It's not healthy. It is not compatible with life, frankly. Some people manage to do it for years or even decades of their lives. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But one of the things we found is that these people developed raging out-of-control diabetes if they were on it for long enough. Why is that so interesting? They eventually figured out that the nutrient that these people were deficient in because it wasn't added to the total parenteral nutrition, i.e. the IV nutrition they were getting, was chromium. And it was the first time in the history of science that anyone had been deficient in chromium. This is so interesting because what it means is there's enough chromium running around in nature for people to have enough that they don't develop overt chromium deficiency. 
If you don't understand why this is so critically important, go watch my masterclass from last week on triage theory and how do you know if you're getting enough of certain nutrients. It was really important. I went over it in very great detail and really explained the theory behind this. And yes, the theory is important for you because it does govern how you act and behave and the lens through which you view your decision-making. But anyway, they figured out that chromium was lacking in these people. We have enough of it in daily life that no one winds up in the ER, the ICU with overt. Um, thanks, Shane. Shane C says, I, I will finish watching this later, but this guy is the best. I appreciate that. There's enough chromium running around in the food supply that people will not wind up in the ER, the ICU with overt chromium deficiency. But a bigger question is, is there enough chromium coming into the average person in their daily diet for them to have optimal chromium status and optimal glucose utilization? And the answer is a resounding no, in my opinion. I won't get into, are we getting enough chromium today? It's a bigger topic. But the bottom line here is this. Chromium is well known to improve glucose sensitivity and reduce fasting blood glucose and reduce hemoglobin A1C. There's not as much literature on it, or maybe I should say there's not enough literature on this for the idiots in charge to endorse it and recommend it. Uh, but you all realize, I think by now, if you found this channel and you follow me on social media, that that's just because the medical industry is, is a giant game and things like chromium really stand to upset the apple cart of, you know, the powers that be who are making a fortune off of the illnesses of Americans. And if something as cheap as chromium could be effective or as effective as many of the drugs out there being used for this, it would ruin a lot of people's plans for buying vacation homes. That's all I'll say on that. So uh, this was a great little uh, paper. And one thing that I find really deeply ironic is that some of the best papers in natural integrated medicine are coming out of, of all places, Iran, Iran, I mean, it's first papers from Nigeria, the second papers from Iran, American scientists, what are you doing and why are you not investigating nutrition and natural medicine and integrated medicine when it has so much value? But anyway, okay. They uh, looked for randomized clinical trials with intake of chromium higher than 250 micrograms for at least three months in type two diabetes, glycated hemoglobin, that's hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood sugar, and a bunch of other markers that I don't really care about were their outcome study or outcomes that they were concerned about. They found a number of different studies that met this criteria and were included in the meta-analysis. They found that the hemoglobin A1C change in diabetic patients in chromium uh, supplement uh, therapy compared to placebo was negative 0.33. Their confidence intervals very, very wide. Change in fasting blood glucose in chromium versus placebo was negative 0.95 with a confidence interval that's similarly wide, but still negative. So what did they conclude? Chromium lowers fasting blood glucose, but does not affect hemoglobin A1C lipids and BMI. I want to point out here that they're being conservative in how they're calling this because the overwhelming trend in what the chromium did to the hemoglobin A1C was to drop it. Okay. And there's not a lot of literature out there on this. Let's just, you know, remember this was published in 2013, right? There were 13 relevant studies uh, and only seven were included in this. So in the entire scope of human history that these people were able to find, they could only find seven relevant studies on this incredible nutrient that has incredible value and promise, and no one can be bothered to study it in more detail so that we can figure out exactly how to use it. And this is why people who are behind the curve are not using it, and people who are ahead of the curve 
like me and my colleagues in the integrative natural medicine world are using chromium almost every day, okay, with great results. All right. Effective magnesium supplementation on glucose metabolism in people with or at risk of diabetes, systematic review and meta-analysis of double-blind randomized controlled trials. So for those of you who don't know, magnesium is one of the favorite supplements for people to recommend. It's real simple why it works for, I mean, practically everything. Like put a dartboard on the wall with a bunch of symptoms on it and throw darts at it, almost every single one, no matter where you hit on the board, magnesium probably has some study somewhere supporting that it works for it. And this is because magnesium is just one of the four macro uh, minerals that drive fundamental metabolism. And we cover that more in the HTMA secrets course that Clark Engelbert and I run and that you can learn more about if you uh, go to Dr. Stillman's special offers page through the link tree below. But anyway, magnesium is well known to be critical for glucose metabolism. And that's why in this, and this is a meta-analysis where they just looked at all the different studies, right? And they found similar things that they found for chromium in the last paper. So although dietary, higher dietary intakes of magnesium seem to correspond to lower diabetes incidence, research concerning magnesium supplementation in people with or at risk of diabetes is limited. Translation, we all know that the higher your magnesium in your diet is, the lower your risk of diabetes. However, we don't know if giving people mag supplements is going to fix this problem or not. And this, by the way, guys, is that critical distinction between it is not the same thing for you to take a pill and for you to take or fix your diet, okay? I cannot impress upon you how important it is to optimize your diet because no amount of supplements will save you from bad dietary habits. It's just that simple. It's kind of hard for people to wrap their heads around and they want to keep eating the way they're eating, the way they're comfortable eating, but there's just no excuse for not dialing in your diet. That, of course, is what Jim Laird and I help people to do in our fundamentals of wellness program, which you can find in the Dr. Stillman special offers page. All right. So what did they find when they looked at these studies? So compared with placebo, magnesium treatment reduced fasting plasma glucose in people with diabetes. In conditions in, uh, in people at high risk of diabetes, magnesium supplementation significantly improved plasma glucose after a two hour, hour oral glucose tolerance test. Okay. So magnesium supplementation appears to have a beneficial role and improves glucose parameters in people with diabetes and also improves insulin sensitivity parameters in those at high risk of diabetes. This is not that controversial. Um, for some reason, this hasn't made it into or tra been translated into clinical practice. Millions and millions of people out there struggling with diabetes have no earthly idea that magnesium is a simple, simple um, I hesitate to say solution, uh, because as I think you guys all know, our speech is very much policed by the regulatory agencies these days. So I don't really want to go down that road, but I want you guys to know this isn't controversial. It's very well established in the literature that magnesium has a critical role to play in insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism. And that's why I'm always looking at mag levels and people who come to me with diabetes or high A1Cs or high glucoses because it's such a critical element to get right. Because if you don't get it right, they will rarely, if ever, you know, recover normal insulin sensitivity. All right. Uh, here's another great article on chromium glucose tolerance and diabetes. So let's talk a little bit more about this. This is from the guy who, from based on my review of the literature, this guy owns the literature on chromium. He's the world expert. 
And I think his comments on this are very interesting. So the requirement for chromium is related to the degree of glucose tolerance. 200 micrograms per day of supplemental chromium is adequate to improve glucose variables in those who are mildly glucose intolerant. However, people with more overt impairments in glucose tolerance and diabetes usually require more than 200 micrograms per day. Daily intake of eight micrograms of chromium per kilo of body weight was also more effective than four micrograms per kilo in women with gestational diabetes. Translation, you've got to use higher doses in order to have a significant effect. Uh, we'll use 200 micrograms twice a day, typically, uh, in cases like this. So supplemental chromium has been shown to have beneficial effects without any documented side effects in people with varying degrees of glucose intolerance, ranging from mild glucose intolerance to over type 2 diabetes. Translation, this is 100% safe and effective. One thing I want you all to know is that chromium in our environment today is not all usable by the body. So if you know the movie Aaron Brockovich, that movie's about a town that was poisoned by hexavalent chromium. Hexavalent chromium is a poison. Trivalent chromium is a nutrient. One thing I want people to know and that we impress on people in our hair tissue mineral analysis course is that when we see, we often see toxic metals coming out of the hair. One of the metals we often see at high levels in the hair is chromium. We shouldn't, or we shouldn't fall for the idea that this is coming in from the diet or even from supplements. I have yet to find anyone with a normal or high hair level of chromium from a supplement. Uh, now I can't prove that they have an environmental exposure, uh, but it begs the question, how much of this stuff are we being exposed to in our daily life and our daily environment? I believe the answer is much more than people suspect, but that's speculation. All right. Another really interesting article on selenium, this one from 2015. Why am I bringing up the, uh, the year? I'll talk about that in a minute. This was an interesting study on selenium supplementation in gestational diabetes. And this one is also in Iran. And the Iranians do the most interesting, the most interesting work going on in this space. This one I was interested in. So to, to our knowledge, no reports are available indicating the effects of selenium supplementation on metabolic parameters, inflammatory factors, and oxidative stress in gestational diabetes. I think that's sad. In 2015, no one had ever bothered to answer or ask this very simple question. And so the Iranians are asking it. Patients were randomly assigned to receive either 200 micrograms of selenium supplements as tablets or placebo for six weeks from weeks 24 to 28 of gestation. Selenium supplementation resulted in a significant reduction in fasting plasma glucose levels, serum insulin levels, homeostasis model of assessment insulin resistance, that's HOMA-IR, another story for another day, and a significant increase in quantitative insulin sensitivity compared with placebo. In addition, a significant decrease in serum high-sensitivity CRP levels was seen after the administration of selenium compared with placebo. Additionally, we observed a significant elevation in plasma glutathione and a significant reduction in plasma malondialdehyde. Wow. That is an across-the-board positive beneficial result. You could not ask for more benefits than that. These are some of the most important metrics and markers for your overall health, vitality, longevity. The power of minerals to change your life is amazing. All right. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, mention one of my favorite things in the whole wide world, GHKCU. Uh, that's GHK, so GH copper peptide. Um, so GHK copper peptide uh, 
has some really important elements. And this gets into the whole peptide world because people are always asking me about that these days. And it is, after all, a video about what I do with diabetes and healthy people, right? Anyway, so GHKCU has some really interesting effects or relevance to this story, okay? So antioxidant genes, it has effects on these, and those are obviously linked to diabetes and linked to uh, all the other illnesses that are associated with diabetes. And GHKCU also is involved in suppression of insulin and insulin-like genes. That's not so much a good or bad thing as it is a we want to get it right thing. More on that in a minute. Um, and obviously, insulin has everything to do with glucose, glucose metabolism, et cetera, right? So let's talk about GHKCU and uh, diabetes. And it is somewhere in here there. Uh, nope. Hang on. Okay. Why do I think this is the most important part? So if you know my work, if you follow me on social media, if you read a lot of my stuff on Substack or in the Stillman wellness newsletter, which you should sign up for if you haven't already, by the way, it's the first link in my link tree. So iron is really interesting as an element because while it is necessary for you to survive, it is also the most toxic element as in pound for pound and based on the amount that's in your body, it is responsible for generating the vast majority of the free radicals that you, uh, that will create oxidative stress inside your body. That means that managing iron is critical for health and wellness. And if you don't know my work on this, go to my Substack, put in iron, put in diabetes, you'll see that I've written a lot about the relationship between uh, iron and metabolic syndrome. Long story short there, higher eye levels of iron are related strongly to insulin resistance, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, all the diseases of aging. And that's one reason why I think that blood donation is destined to make the single greatest therapeutic comeback in the history of medicine, as in it will go from being reviled, ridiculed, and mocked by modern doctors to being embraced as a mainstay of treatment. Personally, recommending blood donation to my patients in my practice has been incredible. The higher the iron level is, as we judge on iron labs, and we did some master classes on this that are now in the fundamentals of wellness. If you want more on this, that's the course to sign up for. So um, the higher the iron level, the more likely the person is to develop metabolic syndrome. And the more you drop the iron level and the total iron load, the healthier metabolism gets. It is one of the most robust correlations I've ever seen in medicine. But anyway, GHKCU, GHK copper peptide controls iron. So iron has an, a direct role in the initiation of lipid peroxidation. And iron Fe2 plus, Fe3 plus complex can serve as an initiator of lipid peroxidation the major storage site for iron in serum and tissue is ferritin, and thus the superoxide anion can promote the mobilization of iron from ferritin, which can catalyze lipid peroxidation. GHKCU produced an 87% inhibition of iron release from ferritin by apparently blocking iron's exit channels from the protein. Why is this so important? Okay, if you've followed me closely, you know that I've recommended these things called LifeWave patches. The LifeWave X39 patch reflects light back into the body that activates GHKCU. That shouldn't be news to you if you've read my articles on this. So what happens when GHKCU gets upregulated, this paper is saying, is that it reduces the amount of iron 
that's coming out of ferritin, which is going to indirectly reduce oxidative stress because ferritin is the thing that controls iron for prevents it from running rampant all over the body and creating absolute mayhem. Now, this is not the only role that GHKCU has in helping your metabolism, but it's one of the most important, in my opinion. And this is why I'm not surprised when people start using LifeWave patches, they come back and they tell me things like, oh, you know, my blood pressure is better. Oh, my insulin control is better. My glucose control is better. I'm able to eat more foods. I'm able to tolerate more foods. I'm able to live my life. I have better energy. All these different things get better. Okay. If you want more information on that, Linktree, there's a LifeWave link in there. Go check out my posts on that. I've done a lot of YouTube content on it. I do a live with Renita Brannon every so often. I'm planning on going to her Thursday night uh, meetings at 8 p.m. Every, uh, every Thursday. That's Eastern time, by the way. So I think that people who come to me with glucose control problems with diabetes, I'm recommending the LifeWave patches to them. It's part of why we include them in our executive physicals now. All right, last but not least, I've got to recommend something from the world of herbs, and that's berberine. So berberine is a pretty amazing herb. Uh, berberine extracted from coptis root and belladendron Chinese has been frequently used for the adjuvant treatment of type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension in China. Okay, it's a very well-known herb. It is sold, and I shouldn't say it's an herb. It's an herbal product. Uh, berberine is part of a group of compounds that are found in certain plants. When you isolate it, it has a lot of therapeutic value. It's been turned into metformin in the conventional medical world, which we'll talk about next, but berberine is still available. A lot of people coming to me won't set foot in a pharmacy, won't touch any drugs. They just want natural products. I respect that. Berberine is one of the things that is useful in improving glucose control. Okay. But how effective is it? So 27 randomized controlled clinical trials were included with 2,569 patients. That's a lot of data, people. In the treatment of type 2 diabetes, we found that berberine with lifestyle intervention tended to lower the level of fasting blood glucose, um, A1C, more than lifestyle intervention alone or placebo, the same as berberine combined with oral hypoglycemics to the same hypoglycemics, but there was no statistical significance between statistically dif significant difference between berberine and oral hypoglycemics. Translation, berberine performs just as well as a lot of the oral anti-diabetic medications that are out there. Okay. And that's really important for people to understand because they're going to the regular doctor, they're being recommended this product that may or may not have nasty, ugly side effects. The more drugs that get put out for diabetes, the uglier the side effects we see. I don't even want to talk about some of the side effects some of the modern diabetes drugs have. It somewhat shocks me that some of them are legal, but that's another story for another day. I won't get into that right now. The bottom line here is that if someone comes in with a high hemoglobin A1C, insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, whatever, berberine may be one of the things that I recommend to them. But there's a strong argument, I think, for using metformin instead of berberine. Shout out to uh, a friend of ours, Jay Campbell. He's got an incredible review on metformin. Jay is convinced that berberine or metformin, excuse me, is pretty much the best thing since sliced bread. And he does not recommend berberine. I'll let you guys view his information and make your own decision. Uh, but the bottom line here is that metformin is amazing. And metformin is so common and so old that it's actually really easy to get. It's on the $4 list at Walmart. I mean, it's 
it doesn't get any cheaper than that. One of the things I want you all to know about Metformin is that there's a lot of information coming out about diabetes, um, or rather Metformin, not just having anti-diabetic properties, but also having uh, life prolonging or longevity promoting uh, uh, value. So let me explain from this, uh, this study on, or this review of Metformin. For the numerous beneficial health, health outcomes associated with the use of Metformin to treat patients with type 2 diabetes, together with data for preclinical studies in animals, including the nematode, C. elegans, and mice, have prompted investigations into whether metformin has therapeutic utility as an anti-aging drug that may also extend lifespan. Wow, what a long way of saying metformin may prolong life in humans based on data and evidence from animal and uh, nematode models. Okay, then they do these two studies, MILES, metformin, and longevity study, and TAME, targeting aging with metformin. These were designed to assess the potential benefits of metformin as an anti-aging drug, Preliminary analysis of results from MILES indicate that metformin may induce anti-aging transcriptional changes. However, it remains controversial as to whether metformin is protective in those subjects free of disease. Translation. Here's what's going on in this, in this review. It's very, very long-winded. Okay. Basically, what they're saying is they've set up studies to look at and have a definitive answer at the end of them as to whether or not metformin prolongs life. The early evidence on that from MILES one of the studies is encouraging and shows that based on transcription level data, that means your genome, it's likely to have a positive effect, but they're hedging their bets because they don't want to look stupid. If that preliminary data doesn't pan out in reality, because one thing we know is that just because something looks good in its preliminary data does not mean that it translates into an actual tangible benefit. Uh, hopefully that concept is, is easily understood. Okay. And so they're not willing to come out and just say metformin is protective in people, period, full stop, okay? It's going to take a lot of time that a lot of you don't have for those results to come back in. And that's why I think smart doctors are hedging their bets. And when they see an opportunity to use metformin and get a clinical benefit, they'll use it. And what I let my patients do or just talk to my patients about is, hey, look, this is something that there's a lot of data behind. You're going to hear a lot about it the more you get into the anti-aging world if it's something that you're willing to take you're not going to do yourself any harm okay and it may have some substantial benefit again jay campbell has a definitive guide to this go read it it's fascinating okay we conclude that despite data in support of anti-aging benefits the evidence that metformin increases lifespan remains controversial again they're just hedging their bets and to be fair to them they don't actually have all the data in yet so i respect their the conservative nature of their recommendation However, via its ability to reduce early mortality, mortality associated with various diseases, including diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline, and cancer, metformin can improve health span, thereby extending the period of life spent in good health. Bottom line, metformin is an amazing option for people with insulin resistance, for people with high glucoses. It's a great drug. I will use it, and I don't use a lot of drugs anymore in my practice. In fact, I think I probably don't... Um, don't send in more than half a dozen prescriptions in a month. And that would be a very busy month of prescribing. So as always, thank you everyone for watching. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, subscribing, all of those good things. Make sure you're on the list at stillmanwellness.com. Make sure you sign up for my Substack at stillmanmd.substack.com. 
I've got more and more premium protocols coming to the premium subscribers to that blog where you will get uh, unique behind the scenes insight into how things really are and how to be healthy and well in our tipsy, topsy, turvy, crazy, wild, sometimes wonderful modern world. Again, thank you all for watching. Have a great Monday and don't forget to get outside.